0: Gentle folk, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I'm joined by my man, Tron Carter. TC, how are you?
1: Randy, great to be with you. Happy Monday.
0: Thank you. And same to you. Uh, before we dive into this episode, I want to thank uh, one of our sponsors, Pinehurst Golf Resort, Pinehurst, North Carolina. I know the number two, I believe you've said is one of your favorite golf courses anywhere. Is that is that correct?
1: I believe it's... Uh... The best is it's the best public golf course in the United States. Bar none. I don't think Pebble holds a candle to it. Yeah. Bottom that, line, period, uh, point blank.
0: High praise. Uh they in addition to the world famous number two, they have the recently renovated number four course. Um, they've built uh, the cradle, which is the most fun par three short course in uh in all of golf. They have do the putting course, and they have a number of Different things off the golf course as well. Uh, They've just opened in the last year uh, plus the Pinehurst Brewery, Pinehurst Brewing Company. Um, They are renovating the Manor, which is the youngest hotel in Pinehurst at 97 years old. Uh, And so it's just an exceptional place. Uh, You know, if you're looking to plan, get away this summer, uh, if you're going stir crazy, urge you to consider Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, check them out. Lots of good things going on down there. Love it. Max is the spot for that draw.
1: Hey. Hey.
2: Hey. hey. I told him, straight drop this and zip lock that. Hey. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. Yeah. I remember yeah. nights I didn't remember night I damn
0: near went crazy, I had to get it right I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper hey I'm
2: your favorite
0: trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me? I from the Oh, thank you, Mr. Jeezy. Uh, always much needed on a Monday. Tron, where, where are we going this week? We're going to Detroit. <laughs> We're going
1: to Michigan. The Mid. Detroit.
0: Mi- the basketball. Detroit. What do yeah. you, what do you, for first thing, what's, what's the quick word association when you hear Detroit?
1: Uh, the malice at the palace. <laughs> That's what comes <laughs> up first. And we'll get to that,
0: I think. I think we're going to spend some time there. Um, the MAC championship game.
1: Yes. We'll spend some time there too.
0: Yep, yep. Been the been Ambassador to a of those. Bridge which you were telling me some things about the ambassador bridge. I was blowing my mind.
1: Crazy. It's privately owned. So that's the bridge. We went up there. So we lived in Toronto for a couple of years growing up, Neil and I, uh, with our parents, obviously. And uh, (laughs) we would drive up to, so there was two ways because we would always go down and visit family in Cincinnati or Columbus. There's two ways to get to Toronto from Cincinnati or Columbus. You can either go over through Buffalo Sure. And, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania, Buffalo, all that. Or you can go up to Detroit and then go across the 401 in Canada. Um, but, you know, cross over into Windsor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then in college, we used to go to Windsor. You know, there was some establishments up there. You guys went. I
0: have never been to Windsor in my life. Oh, man. You're really, yeah. really not missing out. What about uh, the Journey song? The Born and Raised in South Detroit. There you go. That You know. Yeah. Yeah how how cool is that
1: but the ambassador bridge it's privately owned how, it's a massive piece of infrastructure like vitally it's one of the most it's one of the busiest bridges in the entire world and it's privately owned
0: who 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 owns
1: it this this dude he lives in gross Point <laughs> um let me get his name hold on
0: that's unbelievable uh is that where the the um the border is? is yeah, it, is it's, that an, where the it's an international point,
1: is? point of crossing. It's a tolled suspension bridge across the Detroit River that connects Detroit with Windsor. It is the busiest international border crossing in North America in terms of trade volume, carrying 25% of all merchandise trade between the U.S. and Canada.
0: That's, that blows and my mind. And it's
1: privately owned. Wow. It's nuts. Uh, uh, and it's, it's owned by gross point billionaire Manuel Maroon. Who also used to own the Detroit uh, Central Depot, too. You know that giant building that you see when you're driving up from the south, like the old train depot. That's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like the abandoned, but it's like <laughs> this old, you know, kind of neoclassical building. Yeah, he you know, he used to own that too. So wild, but I guess they're gonna they're supposed to build a new bridge. They're talking about building a new bridge. Okay, uh, but just you know, very political deal here. So
0: well, I don't want to start in any of those places. Yeah, I want to start another way. You can get to Detroit is at the airport. Oh, yes. And I know great airport. Is it a good airport? It's a great airport, an they, award-winning airport, they spent, right?
1: They spent like they basically rebuilt the whole thing in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, JD Power and Associates named it the best large U.S. airport in customer satisfaction in both 2010 and 2019. Uh, massive Delta hub. I know you're you're a big Delta I, guy. I,
0: I like that. Uh, I spent a night. Well. I missed a flight. Long story short, I missed a flight in San Francisco through n- nobody's fault except my very own. Um, and so my my timing got thrown off. I was going back to Indiana. It was when I was living in Bloomington. And long story short, I had to take a red eye from San Francisco to Detroit. And then, is that right? Yeah. And then I like had like a four-hour layover in the very early morning in Detroit. I just remember like sleeping on the floor. It was cold. It was <laughs> It was pathetic. It was it was it was terrible. But that's like my only. I feel like Detroit Detroit Airport Airport. used to have
1: a bad a bad rap because it was a Northwest hub, and Northwest just sucked. And now it's you know now now it's kind of the gateway to like uh, Delta does a bunch to Amsterdam and to Northern Europe from there. So uh, and to and to Asia too.
0: What about um, I want to ask you? What about Ember's restaurant in the Detroit? Yeah, airport? so
1: this is this is really every time I think of the Detroit Airport, I, I just go back to um, November twenty first, twenty eighteen, right who, before who Thanksgiving. Forget?
0: Yeah, who could forget?
1: Um, our friend Tom Doke, the Do-Kito, um, was you know I'll just I'll, I'll let him tell it here. On our way to visit our daughter and family for Thanksgiving, and we encountered worst service ever at the new open seat bar and B Concourse in Detroit. After we waited for 20 minutes and nobody even thought about taking our order, my lovely bride went up to the bar. Ten minutes later, she gave up after overhearing one patron ask a stranger he was sitting with to sign his receipt and then <laughs> destroy his card for him. <laughs> he was about to miss his flight and couldn't get his card back.
0: God, that's a tough scene.
1: Yeah. What? And, uh... You know, I mean, I, brand new restaurant too. It didn't give him benefit of the doubt. You know, nothing. And so, but, but going through the comments and everything like that, he shits on O'Hare Airport. There's a couple other things in the comments.
0: But, but don't you think this might have been one of those new restaurants where it's totally self? Uh, well, he addresses. They that. had the kiosk where you order. <laughs>
1: he said, uh, "So in the picture, somebody said looks like there are those tablet, uh, those tablets at each seat. Maybe you order and pay on those. The humans have been replaced." <laughs> Doke says, no, you can't order or pay from the screens. I've seen that at other airports, but in Detroit, they only showed you the menu that you choose from if anyone was actually paying attention to you. Mm. Um, so, you know, just a tough scene all the way around there. Um, one of the busiest travel days of the year. I know. Right before Thanksgiving there, so you hate to see that. Tough scene. But anyway, and then, you know, Detroit Airport. Uh, Speaking of-,
0: of a potentially tough scene. <laughs>
1: Which, you know, turned out to be a great scene.
0: Uh, yeah, let me take you back, TC, to uh, Christmas Christmas Eve. I <laughs> know, oh, Christmas Day. Christmas Day, it was a Christmas. It
1: was a Christmas miracle.
0: <laughs> it was the Christmas bomber was flying into Detroit on Northwest Airlines, uh, Flight 253 from Amsterdam to Detroit.
1: Otherwise known as the Underwear Bomber.
0: The Underwear Bomber. Uh, Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib. I don't actually. I did pretty well with that name. Um, yeah, he's the guy who had the the explosive strapped to it in, in his underwear, and he just was trying to light him light himself on fire to bring down the plane. Uh, thankfully, it, it did not go as planned. Uh, I believe, as our guest later on said, all he ended up doing was scorching his uh, his his groin. But he he obviously got arrested and is now doing consecutive life. Sentences at um,
1: at the Supermax
0: in yeah, where? ADX in Colorado? Florida's, yeah, yeah.
1: That place has been through many wormholes. On that place, yeah. I feel like was he before or after the shoe bomber? I'm, I'm on the shoe that's... bombers. The shoe bomber was uh, let's see, 2001. Oh wow. Yeah, he was he was American Airlines flight 63 from Paris to Miami in 2001, December okay. 22nd, 2001. So this is a this is a, these guys are in the holiday spirit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this guy, the the underwear bomber, I, I like. I just remember there was, um, he, his dad was like a big, big wig in the Nigerian government, I think.
0: And, and he was like well educated, right? He, I yeah. think he was educated in, uh, in Britain. Uh, yeah, University College London and University of Wollongong in Dubai and Iman University, which. Which really, this has know. nothing
1: to do with Detroit, other than the fact that no, the the flight was going to
0: Detroit. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Otherwise, uh, maya culpa's from last week. Yeah. We do TC. We should probably you know rewind, hit pause on Detroit real quick. Um, we have a few to to cover. Somebody was blowing blowing up my mentions that I failed to to acknowledge. Hartford as the home of Wallace Stevens, one of America's preeminent poets. Um, Wallace, actually, the more I dug into him, fascinating guy. was a executive at one of the insurance companies and just like a poet by by night. Did
1: um, somebody fly into the DM saying where, where where's Wallace where, at?
0: Where Wallace at? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so my fault for not ex- acknowledging uh, Wallace Stevens being a, a big presence in Hartford. Uh, I think both of us we failed to acknowledge the birthplace of Arinthol, being Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, that's I, a that's a big. Miss. I'll own that one.
1: Um, Arinthol, of course, being Aaron Hernandez. Um, big mess. Yeah, Connecticut high school football legend.
0: Yeah. So a good documentary on Netflix. Yeah, Apo-
1: um, absolutely. We apologize.
0: We apologize to everybody. Uh, the U.S. Senior Women's Open, somebody said, was at Brooklawn? It was supposed to be at supposed Brooklawn. Supposed to be at Brooklawn, year. which is where? Massachusetts?
1: No, I think it's in Connecticut. That's in Connecticut? Yeah, but I think it's okay. down in the. Let's
0: see. Uh, so we apologize to everybody. Um, we did not acknowledge. Brooklawn's
1: not in Fairfield. I don't really consider that. Like, that's not, that's New York, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. We, we're, we're, we're talking about we the take real. That one back. We're
1: talking about the real Connecticut. We don't here. apologize for that yeah. one. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, a lot of people slid in and said, hey, thanks for not shitting all over my state and taking the obvious cheap shots. You guys went, went a little bit deeper, and, and we're fair. So we appreciated that, too.
0: And then the only other thing I want to mention, the commish, who everybody knows from uh, the Metroplex episode, the commish slid into our text messages and sent us a screenshot of a botanical garden. This, like, big flower display shaped like a, a person, he was like, Can you guess where this is? It's
1: like Moana type stuff.
0: Yeah. And I my guess was it has like it just looks to me like it has to be somewhere like Malaysia, Southeast Asia. They have the like elaborate flowers that looked exotic. And he blew my mind. He said it's Atlanta's. Atlanta has a botanical lovely botanical
1: garden. garden. I do want to caution people though. Botanical garden, we, we talk about arboretums. We do not talk about botanical gardens. On this. That's right. We
0: ride for arboretums.
1: Exactly. There's a distinct difference. We're, we're all about the trees.
0: So um, I don't know if that's really a mea culpa, but uh, I did want to mention that. I, and I think that's that's just about it. That's just about it. We won't apologize for anything else. Uh, we take we 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 acknowledge no fault in anything. Uh, well, getting back to Detroit, then you mentioned the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, other infrastructure of note. The thing that I think of first is probably like the GM towers yeah uh I stayed there. they're like hotels now, yeah part a, of them yeah. a hotel uh, but I stayed there when I would uh, go up for the Mac championship game.' been to a couple of those watching uh, I've never seen Miami win a Mac championship game in Detroit, but I have seen them lose too.
1: The one I went to uh I've been to two. the one I went to that I most remember was when uh Ball State played Buffalo. When Ball State was really freaking good when uh that was Brady, Brady Hoke. Brady Hoke. Yeah. And then uh and Buffalo had had Naaman Roosevelt and a couple other studs. Was it Khalil Mack,
0: maybe at uh, Buffalo?
1: I don't know if that might have predated Mack. I know it was they had that really good running back too.
0: Um yeah, they've had some players through yeah through Buffalo. That was the
1: Turner that was Turner Gill. Yeah. When he was
0: there. Sure. Um
1: so yeah, anyway, that was you know. Going they, up to going up to Detroit for the was that a Friday night game? Yeah, it
0: was. Because they, yeah, they've. I've been to a Friday night game, which is great. Um, I went to one when I was working for Instant Young, and I had to like do a uh, like year-end inventory count for like the Los Angeles office somewhere in rural Ohio on the way up. I was just like praying nothing nothing went wrong, uh, so I could get up to. To Detroit in time for kickoff. But the other one I went to was Saturday morning, and they they now do like Saturday morning, 11 a.m. kicks. And that's tough because you, you got to get up out of bed. You know, you got to go get breakfast. Uh, but it's nice because then you can usually have like a Bloody Mary or two uh, at breakfast. And Have you and ever? Get lubricated. Have you
1: ever been to the, I don't know what they call it now. It's the Little Caesars Bowl or the, oh, bowl, the uh, bowl game up there?
0: I have not. No. Mm mm.
1: Um, Ford. I feel like Ford Field is a weird place to see a game. I feel like it's very, very sterile. It's, it's got that kind of just like straight across ceiling, but it's very, it's very inoffensive. Yeah. Very vanilla.
0: I think that's a good way to put it. Um,
1: James Starks is the running back I was thinking about. He was a stud. Yeah. Drafted by the Packers in the sixth round in 2010. There you go. And and Mac Mac didn't come out till 2014.
0: Okay. All right. Um. Yeah, Four Fields fine. Uh, and it's real, real close to Comerica. I've also never been to Comerica. I did go to the old Tiger Field once. Your uh, dad's a big, a big uh, Red Wings guy, right? Yeah, he grew up a big Detroit sports fan uh, from Toledo, Ohio, which is pretty close. You know, the northern part of Ohio, you you get more Michigan fans up yeah. there, and a lot of Detroit sports fans because it's it, you know it's closer than Cleveland, at least to Northwest Detroit or uh, Northwest Ohio. So, uh, have, have any Detroit Athletes or sports teams <laughs> got your fancy?
1: Not really. I've always wondered, like, why the why the Pistons play, like, why the why the Palace even exists. I remember a couple of years ago, you could buy the the Silver Dome.
0: That's right. What they had that? it on sale for yeah, 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 yeah. It was on sale for like a couple hundred thousand dollars. I yeah. Think. God, that's God the Lions teams with like I remember like Wayne Fonts and. uh I remember when they drafted
1: uh, who was that guy Charles Rogers from Michigan State. And yeah, then they had Mike. They drafted Mike Williams, and then.
0: Well, remember when uh, is it Millen? Yeah, Millen. Millen drafted like wide receivers, like sick. Four straight like years. A, it was like our, it was like your it was like you I, in fantasy exactly. Randy
1: every year in fantasy he's got. Uh, oh my god. He's got no like so our league is we're two quarterbacks. This is starters. Yeah, not, not bad. Two quarterbacks, two tight ends. Three running backs, four wide receivers, and individual <laughs> defensive players. And Randy always ends up with, like, A.J. Green. I blow my whole budget um, on wide receivers. You know, Antonio Brown. He's a big Antonio Brown guy. Keenan Allen. Like oh, I've he's, never had Antonio Brown. He's always got, you know, four of the top 15 receivers. And uh, so he, he basically assembled football teams just like, just like Randy did.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Millen – I'm reading compiled a a record over seven full seasons of 31 and 81 with at least nine losses each year. Detroit's 277 winning percentage was among the worst ever compiled by an NFL team over a seven-year period.
1: The Ford family doesn't seem like they're they're sick. maybe all that coherent as far as ownership goes.
0: Yeah. Uh, Which
1: I think they they just transferred power from the matriarch – down to the next generation.
0: Like Henry Ford the I think it was Martha Martha Ford.
1: Went it, it like last week or something it went down to the next generation.
0: So you know what? Uh have you ever owned a Ford? No. No, we've always been Chevy family. Chevy family. I've never owned a Ford either. Uh I did have a Saturn, which of course was part of GM, and then GM nuked uh Yeah. I nuked a, the line, which was a tough scene. I've had a
1: Chevy, Tahoe, and then I had a Mini Cooper. And then BMW
0: now. Um, well, what else do we need to hit on uh, Detroit? One, I think we both love Bourdain and his yeah. shows. I think his Detroit episode was among the among best. the best that he's done. Um, and you'll get into
1: it with our guest. I today. talked to him.
0: Yeah, I talked to so yeah. Our our Detroit specific guest has has some good insight on on the city and kind of what's what's gone into. Making it the city that that it is, um, but yeah, I, I think that's something I, I associate with with Detroit.
1: Yeah, I think it seemed it seemed like a, a place uh, I went through a couple of years ago. Uh, Maxell Hardy, he he was actually chef down in Tampa and then moved back to Detroit. Um, there's a few like that. That's like people people from New York or that that, that kind of plied their craft in New York for a while, moving back to places like Detroit, Cleveland. Minneapolis, mm-hmm. Savannah, and just because it's cheap, it's cheaper, mm-hmm. and there's a need for it. So hopefully, that's not destroyed by COVID here, and a lot of these restaurants can get back on their on their feet. Uh, one thing with Detroit, too, you know, as, as we talk about arboretums, they're kind of turning large parts of the city into arboretums in Detroit. Well, yeah, I mean they're knocking down a lot of these old vacant right places yeah, and houses. trying to turn yeah. some of the city yeah. back to nature because the footprint is so massive.
0: If you might, and that's my guest does a good job of explaining why that is. But yeah, so many single family homes, standalone homes in Detroit uh, that they were decimated by you know the the recession and and the auto industry obviously shrinking the the workforce and so yeah, it's like what do you do with all of these. Old abandoned houses. That's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's best case use. I I think, in my opinion,
1: yeah, urban farming too. Um, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the old tournament up in Flint at Warwick Hills. Oh, please, old Buick. It was one of the you know fifteen Buick events that they sponsored. (laughs) I I was
0: going to say I can't even keep them. I can't keep. I'm not sure
1: if it was the classic or the open or what. Uh, I just remember Warwick Hills, just a kind of a. Like it was always a, it was always kind of right in the meat of the summer. Yeah. It was always a relatively uh, exciting tournament the cat, because the cat always used to play.
0: I was going to say the, the cat, it, and he won it, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, he would, he won all the Buick events. Um, yeah. Warwick Hills, Grand Blanc, Grand Blanc Township. Uh, it, Tiger, was a, it was the Buick Open. Tiger and uh, Billy Playfair jointly yeah. hold the course record. Of sixty-one, Kenny Kenny Perry, that?
1: two-time winner, VJ, three-time winner, Furick one, uh, Brian Bateman, your won. boy, Rocco, Tom Pernice, Justin Leonard, God, Woody a, Austin. It's a murderer's that's a, row. That's
0: a literal who's who. Um, all right, we we put off the main course. We got to talk about the Malice at the Palace. Oh, please! First question: Where do you remember where you were? I do.
1: I do. Uh, freshman year of college. Yeah. Um we were getting ready to go out for the night. It was like, I don't know, eleven o'clock or whatnot, which thinking about getting your night started at eleven o'clock. Oh. It was, uh, you know. Eleven's
0: early. That was early even in college. Yeah.
1: Well and yeah, I mean, so so we're just kind of sitting there drinking in the dorms and uh and it's Solly and a few other guys and we're just sitting there watching watching like we were watching it live. <laughs> it was it was unbelievable. <laughs> I've never like It felt like the Twilight Zone, and and granted, there's so much crazy shit that's happened this year and the last few years, but that was still to this day that's the craziest sporting happenstance I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's, and I think what speaks to that is I vividly remember where I was when I saw it too. Where were you? I was at I was visiting friends at Ohio State. It was um, I believe it was maybe a Friday night that it happened, right? It was. It was a Friday night. Yeah, you were visiting Big Nut. I was visiting Big Nut because the Michigan football game was the next day. Okay. Um, it was. It was that Saturday, so I didn't go to the game. But I was. I had high school buddies that went to Ohio State, and I was staying with them. And I remember waking up Saturday morning, and we turned on Sports Center, and I was like, "Holy shit! <laughs> what happened?"
1: I remember when when uh, when Stephen Jackson like. You know all the the, the art test stuff was whatever.
0: So, the art test stuff, like to set the stage for a listener, I don't know how you could like not know the malice in the palace, but it was November 19th, 2004, the Pacers were at the Pistons kind of early in the NBA year. They were
1: so good that year too. Yeah. Well, like both teams were really good, but the Pacers were – that was their year.
0: That was their year. And the Pistons, though, were coming off an NBA title. So it was like the two best teams in the East.
1: Ben Wallace, Rip Hamilton. Exactly.
0: And the Pacers were up 15 late in the game. Uh, ben Wallace going in for a dunk layup. Artest – like, fouls him very hard from behind. And uh Wallace shoves our test. The bench is kind of clear, the coaches at least, and they get them separated, and our test goes and lays down on the scorer's table while everything's getting figured out. And then, you know, from there. Some guy
1: dumps a beer.
0: Some guy lobs uh, the beer. Remember, yeah. the beer comes flying in from, from the stands.
1: And then that guy's face. when. And yeah, then when it's go time. Yeah.
0: Our test Shoots up, goes into the stands, and I think he gets after the guy who didn't actually throw the beer because that's like the guy's reaction is priceless. It's like, oh shit.
1: <laughs> um, and then Steven Jackson takes it to like three more levels above where our test took it.
0: I was going to say, I think Steven Jackson, like Steven Jackson's the guy you want.
2: Hell yeah. I love like, Steven riding Jackson. with you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Captain Jacks. He, he, he was like the accelerant on the on the fire. I feel like I remember
1: him uh, like walking through the tunnel at the end after they'd already. And he's like, "We ride together, motherfuckers. <laughs> we ride together." Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, the, like the the other really big thing is Jermaine O'Neal. Jermaine had, O'Neal. I think like, he
0: would have. He would have had that dude. It looked like Turtle from Aron Remember? <laughs> yeah, he had that guy squared up with just like a straight right hand and. Kind of slipped out, and thankfully like for that guy would everybody have died. involved, yeah. yeah uh did not really connect it was there's a funny story that I've heard in multiple places when they finally got the they gave, they called the game it was like under a minute to go in the fourth quarter they they call the game uh they get the pacers to the locker room it was like
1: a it was a national like uh Bill Walton was there right
0: yeah, I think it was probably like a friday night e s p n game and the, the story goes that they get everybody they, – they get the Pacers into the locker room and, you know, these guys are l- literally maybe the most infamous brawl in NBA history. They've been in the stands. Um, you know, I can't imagine their adrenaline. And I guess Artesk, like, kind of comes in and he looks around and, and he's not – like, his, his mood doesn't really match, like, what just happened. And I guess he he asks either Steven Jackson or somebody, Artesk goes – you think we're gonna get in trouble for this? <laughs> <laughs> They're like Ron, like we're gonna get in so much fucking trouble for this. Yeah, um, but that just goes it, to show amazing. you, like our test was like, oh, he's on a he's, different planet. Yeah,
1: it, well, it, it was amazing um, how like like Larry Brown was the coach of the Pistons. Mm-hmm.
0: You've got. Donnie Which, shout Walsh, out to Toby and Houston. You've got
1: Bill Walton and Mike Brainer on the call. Guess who? Guess who? One of the referees was.
0: I well, I saw it, but yeah, I, Tim Donahue. Tim Donahue, exactly.
1: Crazy. Um, yeah, there's just so many. I don't know. Like the whole, like the fact that Rashid Wallace, like that, that he was involved but not really, yeah, is right. kind of shocking. Right. Like, but if you could just have the craziest dudes in the league. <laughs> In one spot like this, the, it was the perfect storm. It was
0: awesome. There were so many guys on that court that were likes to fight guy, like ready to go guy. Um, and God, then and man,
1: everybody's throwing the beers at the end. Good. And it got like, it, it was, it was kind of scary to watch too. Cause you didn't know what the hell was going to happen.
0: Right. It, it, I think for a, a few moments there, it was veering on, it might be like 20,000 people ganging up on the, on the Pacers. Uh and I remember like you go back and listen to Bro like that's what I remember about Breen and Bill Walton. Uh, you know, like imagine trying to call that in real time. Like <laughs> it's oh my God. Uh, so our
1: test got suspended eighty-six games, <laughs> seventy-three regular season and thirteen playoff. Steven Jackson. Yo, you got think we're gonna get in trouble for this? Thirty games. Um Jermaine O'Neal got suspended 15 games. It was reduced on appeal from 25 to 15. Ben Wallace got six. Anthony Johnson got five. Reggie Miller, Chauncey Billups, Derek Coleman, Eldon Campbell, and David Harrison—or sorry, and uh, not David Harrison—but uh, all those other guys got got one game. So. And then, you know, there was some anger management therapy involved, community service, $250 fine. They didn't know if, like, people were going to press charges, if, the, if, if it was going to get legal, too. Mm-hmm. Just wild, wild. So uh,
0: Pacers coach Rick Carlisle was quoted, I felt like I was fighting for my life out there. Um, it that one reporter attempted to stop Jamal Tinsley from entering the stands recalled that the player went through me like I was butter. I, I mean – that, like that, was so sick.
1: And they were so like that was the other thing. They were so the Pacers were so good that year. Yeah, I like, mean that
0: was were, kind of almost like that was the gonna, undoing of that that Pacers team. Yeah. It turned out to be
1: they were gonna they were like they were, that was gonna be one of the better like those were the two
0: best teams in the league at that point. Yeah, you know? certainly, certainly in the Eastern Conference. Um, so, oh, wild. Um, God, there was so much pearl clutching too oh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like the uh, it reminded me of.
1: Could you imagine the, that happening, the Billy
0: Payne, Augusta National pearl clutching after the Tiger yeah. scandal stuff? Like just, ugh.
1: can you imagine that happening in like the age of Twitter?
0: No, no. He
1: says, like that was no. back when like we just watched. I know. TV on you know big ass TVs yeah.
0: and. Like I, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I didn't even know about it until the next morning. It, it, yeah, God. Do you, can you imagine how much content would have come out of that on Twitter? I feel like
1: all sorts of crazy shit happened that, because that was the same, uh, that was like three or four weeks after the whole Kurt Schilling painting his sock thing, too.
0: That was the year he Dutch-boyed his sock. Yeah.
1: So that was my, that was freshman year of college for me. And like all sorts of crazy yeah. sports stuff happened.
0: So that would have been when the Sox came back from 3-0, 3-0 yeah. down on the yeah. Yankees.
1: Dave Roberts was stealing bases galore.
0: Yeah. All you're that. right. Huh. So. Um, well, I encourage people the the screenshot of the guy that Ron Artest like, attacks in the stands is one of the funniest things, (laughs) I guess. And I guess his name's Michael Ryan. Um, I didn't realize
1: Ron Artest is now named Meta Sandiford Artest.
0: So he he changed his name. It's not World Peace anymore. No, he's did he give up on World Peace? I hope he didn't give up on World Peace.
1: Uh, in May 2020, Meta Sandeford, our test from Meta World Peace. Let me see what the. Let me see if there's a, a, description there or anything like that. I uh, yeah,
0: gosh, if he's giving up on World Peace, I just that makes me feel really pessimistic. Combining
1: the last names of himself and his wife,
0: Maya Sandiford. That's There you go. He's on the leading edge. There you go. That's cool. Where did Meta? I mean, I know the word Meta, but like, why? Do we know why Meta? No. Okay. <laughs> who could say? Literally, who could say? It was it was
1: meant to inspire and bring youth together all around the world, which you know, who can say if it did that or not?
0: I'd almost say mission accomplished. Uh,
1: uh, world Peace chose Meta as his first name because it is a traditional Buddhist word that means loving kindness and friendliness towards all.
0: Oh, all right. You've
1: come so far since the since yeah. the the, the uh, palace. Cool. So.
0: Um. All right, a couple food and and beverage notes, TC. Uh, Like, I think Detroit thinks they're this home for conies. I don't, yeah. I I know I'm going to catch some flack on this, but I never associate Detroit with conies, although I know they're like a thing there.
1: Well, I want to get this out there right now. I'm a big Skyline guy. People are like, oh, Skyline's great. No, Skyline chili is delicious. It's the best. Three, four ways. I I don't really dip into the five ways too much. What do you not like, the beans or the I don't like the beans.
0: You're not a bean guy. Okay. I like
1: the, I like beans in general. I just don't like them on my on my on my four way. Okay. Uh, and then t- I get a four way with onions and two cheese conies
0: every time. Well, that's good. I think the difference between the Cincinnati cheese coney and the Detroit coney, the Detroit, they don't put the cheese on the coney, which it's just a chili dog, right? It's just a chili dog with uh, onion mustard and I don't know maybe relish or something. Um, Are you I a Little know. Caesars guy? Everybody like oh. I feel
1: like I feel like Detroit there's like it's like the the fast food pizza capital of the world. You got Domino's up there, you got little Caesars up there, Mike Illich, the um Red Wings. He and, was the Little Caesars yeah. guy. Yeah. He was Little Caesar.
0: Uh, honest to God, I don't know if I've ever had a little Caesars pizza. Pizza Pizza? Pizza Pizza. The hot and ready. I've never I've never taken advantage of the hot and ready. We had the one down here in Jack's Beach and it folded up. So I don't know. Huh. Um Domino's, do you like
1: Domino's? Domino's thin crust is good. But now that now that Donatos is down here. It's I'm, a it's, it's 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 over. It's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah,
0: well,
1: do, do, uh, Domino's thin crust is good. I'll say that. I'm not I hate Pizza Hut, so.
0: Yeah, I'm I don't I Domino's the like the brand re-imaging that they've gone through the last several years has been kind of impressive. I
1: you're a big you're you're a big brand guy, right?
0: I'm a huge brand guy, uh, but I can't. You know, I'm so loyal to Papa John that <laughs> it's hard for me to stray.
1: Papa's in the house.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. Last thing, uh, beverage wise, I got to give a huge shout out. My favorite, maybe my favorite soda, certainly my favorite ginger ale, Verner's, was created right there in Detroit. Uh, by, I believe, Dr. James Verner, uh, if you can believe it. Ginger ale is very underrated. I agree. Uh, James Verner, yeah. Yeah, so check this out. Verner's is the oldest surviving ginger soda sold in the United States. And that's where I grew up. Again, I said my dad's from Northwest Ohio. Going to my grandparents' house, they would always have Verner's up there outside Toledo. So that's how There you go.
1: Yeah. You remember... um, Sparks red cream soda? Of course I do. Is that an Ohio thing? Because the only place I've ever seen that was Ohio.
0: I don't know, but... I think
1: there's 70 grams of sugar per <laughs> it's, can. It's so, uh,
0: it's so good. <laughs> right? Yes. It is like a sugar bomb. Uh, I will say Skippers on in Oxford, okay. in Miami, always has it on, uh, on their fountain. Interesting. It's the best.
1: And, you know, I feel like we could do a 10-part series on Detroit and Michigan and... It's a fascinating place we haven't gotten to music we haven't gotten to oh god like uh, motown
0: like uh. yeah m
1: m madonna's <laughs> yeah. from there i guess uh the white stripes you know all sorts of kid rock year boy, kid your rock. boy
0: your boy kid rock <laughs> uh
1: did you know there's a, a salt mine 1200 feet below this city i had no idea there you go
0: the more you know man are you a motown guy um I, uh, yeah i do like motown i do too i really like it i i won't claim to be any type of expert but i i do like it i big jackie wilson guy here
1: yeah yeah great pipes um yeah the motown channel like the some of those channels on
0: on xm are really good
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It just puts me in a good mood as soon as i
0: up in like 49 i think is uh is the one i i go to the most uh
1: i'm on this mental floss thing here um uh, Sorry, Journey fans, there's no such thing as South Detroit.
0: Oh, yeah, because it's in the river, or it's like Canada, right? Isn't that like the joke? I, I guess. I don't know. Like geographically, well, if you Well, Steve Perry South, just
1: said he was penning it, and he just said he, th- he thought it sounded good. <laughs> uh, the city has the most registered bowlers of anywhere in the United States. That's interesting. Shout out to Kamish. Commish is a big
0: bowler. Commission does roll his rock. More
1: potato chip consumption than anywhere in the United States, too. That's
0: a bit surprising, too. So. Oh. Huh.
1: Are you have it? Are, are you a, are you a Tigers fan at all?
0: No. I mean they don't offend me, but I'm I'm not a fan. They had one their longtime famous broadcaster Ernie Harwell. Um I know is very influential to Marty Brenneman and and others. So, um you know don't the Red Wings stink? That's apropos of nothing. Yeah, they really stink. Like what
1: happened? They were like the model franchise in yeah. all
0: of North American sports. They, um, as best as I can tell, they, they they were excellent at at churning talent, developing talent, drafting, developing, kind of like the Spurs model. Um, and I think what happened was they got they they found themselves in a situation where they had a group that was getting older. And instead of blowing it up and, and maybe they made doing some tough Keep it together yeah they, they kept just trying to extend it and they'd made the playoffs for a few years but they weren't really a contender um, and they missed on some drafts uh, and so it, it kind of all came crashing down um, they just didn't have the the youth back in the pipeline but I will say that they hired Steve Eiserman from the Tampa Bay Lightning who did a great job. Uh, as GM down there. And so this was, I believe he was just in his first year maybe in Detroit. So I, I know that there's a lot of hope that, you know, he can, coming back home, uh, he can work his magic. So, you know, like like marquee franchises and other sports, I think hockey's better when Detroit's good. Uh, so hopefully they can get back there. Yeah. Um, I
1: think we'd be remiss if we didn't shout out the the golf scene. In the city, I mean, it seems like there's a pretty good. You got you got a bunch of bunch of good golf courses, bunch of good privates. You got some good publics. like that that Rackham course. I'm dying to get there. Mm-hmm. This looks cool. Um, Oakland Hills sounds like they're gonna be rocking and rolling after this renovation slash restoration that they're yeah. doing. Um, all sorts of good good
0: well, good golf up there. And even where they're playing this week, Detroit Country Club. I mean. It's hard to get a sense like when the pros just go so low, like how good of a course it is. But it seems like you know, thirty six hole play. Yeah. Thirty six hole complex.
1: Yeah. Um, so we haven't even got. I mean, you know, we haven't gotten into anything. Michigan. You know, we thought about having Mike Tarico on. Um, thought about a lot of different angles here, but I, th- I think you know.
0: In the end, there was only one one choice for who to have on. Yeah. My, my guy, Quinn Kleinfelter. Exactly. <laughs> you might be asking, I don't know why you'd be asking me, you might be asking, who is Quinn Kleinfelter? And that's a great question. He is the senior news editor at 101.9 WDET, which is the uh, the public radio affiliate there in Detroit. As you'll see in the, the interview, uh, complete pro's pro. Um, just goes about his business with, with the utmost professionalism. And so I... Really enjoyed. And, and he, he honestly, he, he kind of puts the context of the city and some of the dynamics at play in the city in, into light that is, is quite interesting. And, you know, I hope, I hope people learn something.
1: This is a golf podcast. It's not about golf.
0: Exactly. And that's why I told Quinn, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I think he was a little confused why, <laughs> why I was interviewing him. Uh, but it couldn't have been nicer. Well,
1: I'm sure we'll have plenty of mea culpas next week. But, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, I think we've opened ourselves up for many Mea <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anything else on your end?
0: Uh, No, no, Huh. uh
1: You didn't even bring up Kwame Kilpatrick. That's
0: well, my guy. my guy Quinn talks about him a okay, little. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, Kwame. Listen, <laughs> that, was, that was a tough scene there for a little bit. <laughs>
1: so, uh, Congratulations to, also to your boy, um, Dan Gilbert. Yes. You're a big you. Dan Gilbert guy. Huge Dan. Very cool to see what he's done for
0: Detroit. Yeah. Which again? Know, Rocket
1: mortgage and all that. Yeah, I, I bit my tongue, and
0: Quinn lays it out. He's done many, many good things for for the city. With that, I cannot deny. So I, he's not my boy, but uh, I I do recognize that that he's had an impact on the city. Cool. All right. Anything else you want to lob my way? No,
1: no. I think that was, I think that was enough for one week.
0: All right. Perfect. Well, enjoy the interview with Quinn, and uh, we'll see everybody next week.
1: We got two.
0: Back-to-back Columbus.
1: Two Columbus events in a row. So we're going to get, you know, Randy's on the home with Big Nut, his buddy.
0: Big Nut, maybe Buckeye guy <laughs> for, for week two. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see what shakes out. So, cheers. Before we do get to the interview with Quinn Kleinfelter, I want to thank our other sponsor for today's episode, and that is DraftKings, DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, they have uh, – America's top rated sportsbook app it's safe secure and reliable you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience t c the the main action this week is the uh the rocket mortgage classic I know you got you got some plays up your sleeve I'm sure
1: it's a tough one to handicap I think uh you know Bryson's odds on favorite plus six fifty but uh yeah overall I don't know it's it, it seems like it's kind of anybody's course bombers play well here you got short guys like snedeker and and um, you know, other short guys. that they, they kind of play well here. <laughs> Well, like
0: Lashley came out of nowhere last year. Yeah, and you know. play well here last year. So Doc Redman, it, I think, was runner-up. It's, it's a complete sweepstakes. <laughs> so, I think your favorite type of tournament.
1: Yeah. Well, y- you know what? Yeah, it is to a certain extent. It's tough when it's just like who's going to make the most birdies. Right. Because that's what this week seems like. So it's a little bit tougher. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm relying on my, my multi-tour mega parlay. That's right.
0: This week. You, you like to dip a little in the...
1: Corn Ferry Tours out on out in Colorado. Exactly. Combining that, getting some getting some serious value there. Uh, um, but yeah, and also uh, DraftKings has a uh, you get your bet back if your golfer finishes in the top ten. If you do a straight they got straight, insurance straight win weekend. bet. So I, I did that with uh, Jay um, and then you know I think I got a good feeling about Scotty Shuffler
0: this week. You always have that feeling in (laughs) fairness, but I like where your head's at. Uh, So everybody, head to the app right now. Check out all they have to offer. uh, Player props, live betting, so much more. Uh, And they will be offering a special odds boost for the golf tournament this weekend. And if Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, don't forget about DraftKings Fantasy app, which will be running a huge fantasy golf contest this weekend uh, with millions of dollars up for grabs. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NLU when you sign up. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right, DraftKings Sportsbook has a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Just enter code NLU when you sign up, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough restrictions. Apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or TC in Indiana.
1: 1-800-9-WITH-IT. That's right. Which we had to put Neil on the penalty box this
0: week. Well, he's... We, we joked that Neil went to hang out with his nine friends in Indiana. Uh <laughs> We thank DraftKings for sponsoring this episode. And now on to our interview with Quinn Kleinfelter. What a name. Uh. Quinn, thank you so much for for joining me today and and taking
2: the time. How are you? I'm doing fine, as well as anybody can be doing in these days of a pandemic. Yeah, um, I I hear you there. Uh,
0: Crazy, crazy times for sure. So you moved. To Detroit in 1998
2: is is that is that correct? That yep, that is true. A uh, very uh, end of January, my first day on the job, they had CNN on, and to show you what timing it was, Bill Clinton came on the first thing that I saw, saying that he did not have relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That's so right. I've always been able to tell the first day that I started on the job here. <laughs>
0: Well, let let me let let me start here. Then um, maybe this is a tough question, but what are some of the when you think about your now you know over twenty years spent in Detroit, what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed uh, in your experience there?
2: You know, it's so strange. I mean, to start off talking about the pandemic because that has brought not a screeching halt, but it, it's really thrown a wrench into a lot of stuff that had been going really well for the city up until now. Uh, it's changed pretty dramatically over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, Detroit at the height of it in the 50s was close to 2 million people, uh, was just thriving, and then people began to filter out as manufacturing dropped a bit. Um, By the time they got to 1967, they'd had a riot here, which a lot of people called rebellion, which is very similar to the George Floyd things of today. A lot of police brutality that was targeted specifically at younger black guys. And there was a distinct white flight after that. So the city dwindled uh, to the point where it got down to a million and then now currently around 600,000, I think close to 700,000 people left as a populace. And a lot of it went to the outer lying suburbs. Um, Detroit has been for the longest time the most, for a while, and now at least one of the most segregated areas in the entire nation, which a lot of people wouldn't realize. The city itself is 80 plus percent African-American and the suburbs surrounding it are overwhelmingly white. And so there's always been this dichotomy between um, black and white and suburban and urban, where you see like in a lot of places. But the difference with Detroit was because there was so many people before, um, Henry Ford, the patron saint of the city, I guess, uh, had said that, um, you know, everybody, every man should have their own castle and every man should have their own car which should be a Ford, obviously, right? Yeah. Back in those days. And so because of that, um, there aren't a heck of a lot of skyscrapers or big, tall apartment buildings because there's a bunch of one-family homes scattered throughout the city of Detroit. And there wasn't much of a public transportation system because everybody should be driving on the road. Uh, when people started leaving the area, what that resulted in was that you had a lot of one-person homes that were abandoned. And the city itself stretches like 142 square miles. And, and you know, with less than half the population they used to have, you just had these huge pockets of blight where it was abandoned homes, boarded up homes, uh, various mayors, the current mayor, Mike Duggan has made a big priority of trying to bulldoze those down and at least have the properties be able to be used for something else. And you have uh, roads that really got chewed up by a lot of the uh, uh, automobile parks traffic going back and forth to the big three automakers here, um, and not a lot of public transportation. So all that has uh, developed over time. And when I got here 20 years ago, it was close to the nadir of that. There were still a few more people than there are now. um, When we had the Great Recession, a lot of them took off. Uh, But downtown was boarded up. Um, you literally go through what should be a thriving business area, and there were abandoned storefronts all over the place. And there were a lot of people that were still in deep uh, pockets of poverty. That began to change um, pretty much by two individuals, uh, which is, is a bit strange for a big urban area, but you can almost target the two. And they are two people who are, have a lot of money and uh, were involved in sports. One was Mike Illich, who made all his money off of the Little Caesars pizza pizza place. And the other was Dan Gilbert, who has made his money through his mortgage company. Um, Quicken Loans. And they invested in the city, Illich especially to begin with, and brought a lot of the sports teams back downtown that had been scattered to outerlying areas. And Gilbert put a lot of his headquarters downtown and put a lot of money into that area and tried to make it a cooler place for millennials in particular, which were the people that he was bringing in from the suburbs. And the downtown sprouted up. Um, it, it was it was really hit a rock, not rock bottom, but pretty close during the great recession because there were so many people out of work and there was such trouble with the car companies. They had to be bailed out by the federal government. Um, but Gilbert began putting money particularly in at that point, trying to build up the downtown and, um, and it worked and it became suddenly instead of a place where people were scared to go to, it became a, a thriving area that was the happening thing to go down to. And so that whole, his whole, Uh, been a complete change from what it was uh, when I first got here 20 years ago. Um, What has not changed, however, and and exacerbated to an extent, uh, was that uh, the vast majority of people living in the city were not living in the cool areas downtown or or in Midtown, which just goes past downtown and includes Wayne State University. They were living out in the neighborhoods, which still had these huge pockets of block after block of abandoned homes. And there was no rhyme or reason. It wasn't like, you know, well, watch that area. Don't go to the bad side of town because these were scattered all over the place. It was people that had left abruptly when the jobs had left or the white flight because they were scared in the 60s. And so it was hard to pinpoint any one area to try to clean up. And when the downtown started thriving, a lot of people in the outer areas would say, well, when's it going to get out to the neighborhood? And Gilbert and others had said, well, we need to start job activity out there. We need to get some of this money and investment moving out towards that area, but uh, that had still not necessarily happened. And because a lot of the people that were moving in downtown were coming from outside of Detroit, a lot of them weren't black. Um, and again, that's not to get so racially motivated, but it is a big factor. I mean, that was something for me having been around Detroit for a long time. And I would see lots of people, not just, you know, people of color, but a lot of people who were white coming in and you would say, man, who are all these tourists? Because before, they'd come in, and it'd just be a bunch of people that would come in, go to the theaters or the sports stadiums downtown, throw a bunch of trash around, and then get on out of Detroit. And we'd all stand around and go, well, why don't you stay out and throw your trash you know, out in your area, out in the suburbs? Um, now, these people were living down there, but uh, the vast majority of everybody in the neighborhoods was still African-American. And you'd hear this cry, you know, when is the, the investment going to get out to us, to the majority of the city? So that's been a... Um, a, a tension that has remained uh, throughout the 20 years that I've been here, and it's only increased as the downtown uh, began to build up. Uh, with the pandemic now, a lot of the things that had been building up and starting down there uh, came to a screeching halt as it has in, in much of the country where they closed things down and had these stay-at-home orders. In Michigan, they had some of the most restrictive stay-at-home orders in the nation. And because of that, um, a lot of these places, that were thriving pretty much uh, have have either had to close their doors for good or taken a big hit and are just reopening now. And um, Gilbert and others have put in some incentives to try to get them to reopen again. But it's really brought what was at least a flourishing area down there back to a standstill, um, people hope temporarily, but uh, but you never know.
0: Let, let that me was long-winded. Sorry yeah. about all that. <laughs> no, I was, it, it's uh, it, it was fantastic. Um, it, let me. There, God, there's so many places to uh, to jump in there. But let me uh, let me start with the two names you you mentioned, Mike Illich and, and Dan Gilbert, and specifically Mike Mike Illich. You uh, alluded to the fact he made a lot of his money through the litter, Little Caesars uh, pizza business. Can you give a sense of? Um, what what teams did he own and, and what did he do for the city and, and what made him uh, such a, I, I think, from an outsider's perspective, it seemed like he was a really beloved owner um, and, and just maybe more generally about his legacy around the city.
2: He was a beloved owner. That's a good way to put it. He owned the Tigers, uh, the Red Wings, which when other Detroit sports teams were not doing so hot, uh, was winning championships and was something that a lot of people looked up to um, he was, he made his money through the pizza place, but he was one of maybe the only one that decided to put money back into the city of Detroit when other people were finding, you know, richer fields elsewhere. Uh, he rebuilt the, what they call the theater district. Now they had the Fox theater that was beginning to get on its last legs. He helped rebuild that. They had a, the Fillmore next to that. Uh, They had the Tiger stadium that I'd gone to a few times, which really hadn't been redone since Ty Cobb was a young buck, which God knows when that was. Um, (laughs) And, and it was was a place where, you know, I, I went and interviewed McGuire, Mark McGuire, when him and Sosa were having their big home run derby. um, And and you had to just, I'm not that tall of a guy and I had to just bend way down just to get through the tunnels to the dugout because the thing was just built with this concrete that was ready to fall over i mean tiger stadium was really not on its, it wasn't on its last legs i don't know how mcguire ever fit through those tunnels um but it was beloved by everybody because it was a great thing they called it the corner you know it had all this great stuff well anyways um illich got that out and got comerica park which is a new state-of-the-art facility uh the ford family built ford field right next to it for the lions and brought them back from the suburbs And then the Pistons are relocated now into the Little Caesars Arena, which was something that Illich had uh, put up and had had people around um, that area compiling properties for a while so they'd have enough of an area to build this big uh, entertainment slash basketball arena. And so they have this whole big theater sports district now downtown, um, the vast majority of which is because Mike Illich put the time and effort and his own money and name on the line to get it down there. And any one of the above would have made him beloved to a vast majority of people in Detroit. So, you know, that, that love for him is, death was definitely there. He passed a, a while back. Um, and uh, you know, his legacy stands because you can look at it. You can see it in the stadiums that are there. You can see it in the theaters. So the one part that would be uh, something that people would have iffy about him and again, it's this tension between the downtown and the, the rebuilding areas and the areas that are not rebuilding. Uh, for the 15 or so years that they were assembling the money to put up this big, grand, little Caesars Arena, the Illiches would buy up portions of properties, And rather than trying to fix them up or make them good for anybody, they would just let them rot. And the basic theory being that the properties next to them would lose their value because they had this rotted property next to them. And so eventually those people who want to sell that property and that theory worked. And after 15 years, they would gotten enough property together that they could put up this arena. So, you know, there are some, uh, who would, who would again, out in the outer lying neighborhoods that would say, well, what have you done for the city? I mean, you're going to be making a ton of money off these arenas yay for you, but what have you done for us besides build, you know, a grand uh, palace for a sports teams on property that could have, how the dreams of others that could have lived in that area and now we're not able to because properties around them rotted. So, so there is, there is that, there is that aspect to his legacy. Uh, But for the vast majority of people, if you look around, you know, and, and, uh, and say what he did, they'll just point to all these, these great edifices and, and just the thriving area down there and say, you know, you mentioned Dan Gilbert, Illich was Gilbert. Way, not only way before Gilbert, but when nobody even remotely wanted to be a Gilbert. Illich was the one that put the money in and built stuff up and uh, will forever have a place in the hearts of Detroiters because of that.
0: Speaking to Gilbert, um, I, I find it fascinating making a lot of his money through Quicken Loans. Um, certainly benefited from a from a housing bubble, and uh, depending on your point of view. May have helped to accelerate it with some loan practices and and whatnot. Is is there a paradox there? I mean, do people is that something that's discussed in Detroit? How he can, on one hand, be you know a benefactor for the city and, and doing really good things, but then also, you know, through his business practices, um, may have played a, a, a part, however small, in in you know a lot of those homes being abandoned and foreclosed and and that sort of thing
2: yeah yeah you know i mean i I think that there is that sense of that among some people um there was certainly that kind of a sense among the federal government which they were suing uh uh, gilbert over some of his practices and that gilbert was going to file a countersuit and said that they were just trying to squeeze money out of him and eventually that got settled um you know Illich put in x amount got the sports stadiums in and then he was getting towards the end of, of his time of life, let alone his, his time of trying to invest. And his family kind of took over. But, you know, that was kind of that. Um, downtown itself was still boarded up. It was still a ghost town by many, many people's uh, statements. And Gilbert changed that. He put in his headquarters, which he could have put anywhere, and put his quick and Loan headquarters down there. Uh, built all these cool little restaurants and stores, high-end ones that most people in the city of Detroit wouldn't have been able to afford to go to. Specifically so that he could keep the people that were coming in. He was transporting them in from outside of the city, from the suburbs, in little shuttle buses. And he wanted people to live there. And they made it a cool place. He made it a cool place. He bought up a lot of these buildings. He put a lot of money into them and fixing them up, uh, keeping some of the original architecture, but kind of upgrading them. And and so certainly city officials saw him as a, a huge not just a huge player, and and saying a savior is too far off, I think. Um, But he he became almost um, a city official himself, in a way. I saw statistics a while back, so I I don't want to quote them inaccurately. But it was something like 70% of the downtown area he had bought up. You know, he bought all these buildings that were had this great architecture that people, you know, in the heyday of the Detroit automakers had, had made super fancy looking. The Guardian buildings, Guardian building places that just uh, were really cool looking um, and had a lot of great uh, architecture and, and windows and just wonderful stuff. And he bought them up at a pretty cheap price, uh, restored them, and then kind of did almost like he does with his mortgage companies. They sold some of them off, others he had. He's still in the midst of building what he would say would be the tallest or at least one of maybe the tallest buildings in the city. Um, And so to own that much property and to put that much money into it, um, you know, he, he's not the mayor, but it's like, my gosh, you know, if Gilbert put his, um, his imprint on it, then that was something you paid attention to right now, because you knew that was where the money and the, the, the re of the downtown was stemming from. And so, so there's that reaction to it that, you know, man, if Gilbert Gilbert hadn't put money in here, you know, it'd still be boarded up. So there was that, Um, you know, you're right in terms of making money off of the housing bubbles and so on. Uh, um, And and some people that have worked for him, love him. Others say that, you know, it's, it's a grinder because they got to flip mortgages. And so they're really, you know, having people in their 20s that are ready to have a literally have a heart attack just because they're under such pressure to keep flipping those mortgages and making money. Um, so there's there's that aspect of it, too. But then they're making good money at a very young age and they're able to go to all these cool little places. So so they're happy with, with that. Um, it, it goes back again to this tension between the downtown and the lying neighborhoods. And well it's great that Gilbert built all this up and put all this money in there, but what about the neighborhoods? What about us? What about where the, the vast, you know, six hundred thousand rest of us live in Detroit? Is any of that ever going to eke its way out into the neighborhoods? Any of that investment, any of that money? And Gilbert, to his credit, has done press conferences and other things, um, where he has said that that they want that to happen. And have made some inroads into trying to make that happen and putting in some incentives to try to get people to uh, get more training uh, for work jobs and to try to uh, get more money put out there. Uh, reason being, he would say, is that he wants to employ people from the city of Detroit and you need to have X amount of skills, which a lot of people in the city of Detroit didn't have. And so you needed to upgrade that. And so they would... Um, be pushing for those kinds of things on the part of Gilbert and his people, his, his bedrock company, which is his, uh, his um, real estate arm of, of his big conglomerate. And, you know, the, he, he has a history uh, of doing this in Cincinnati, he did it in Cleveland, where he would refurbish a lot of these big areas and then kind of turn them back over to the city and have made some money along the way. But he has said that uh, he wanted to do it for Detroit because it was his home area. And he wanted it to get fixed up. And certainly the downtown, up until at least the pandemic, um, had, had been showing those signs of that. He himself had suffered a stroke uh, not that long ago, and so had stayed more out, out of the public eye than he had been. Um, but his projects still seem to be going on uh, pretty well pace and, uh, and so there's just that thing, you know, is, is there ever going to be any of this getting out to the neighborhood and people wondering... You know, the great Gilbert's doing that for that area. Is he going to do anything for us?
0: And you, you mentioned the the ongoing friction between the downtown area and the outer neighborhoods. Is there a path forward to reconcile that? I, I will kind of put you on the spot. Um, you know, in, in your opinion, how does that ever get fixed? Is that something? Um, do issues lie in in local governments, or I kind of talked about some of the root causes? But I'm curious if there are if there's hope to kind of allay some of that that friction.
2: I, I, I you know I think that tension will always be there. Um, again, I mean it, it's hard to say an absolute um, without sounding just ridiculously like a windbag. Um, I, I think a lot of people what they want is to have a chance to make it on their own. And that's not anything against Gilbert at all or anybody that's putting in investment. But uh, the fact is that Detroit still has uh, one of the highest poverty rates in the nation and uh, way higher than the national average. Um, You know, there's only, I think, half or less than half of the city that has internet, uh, subscriptions. They have access to it, but they don't have the ability to actually go pay for internet. So a lot of them don't have internet. The schools had to be taken over by the state for a while, and then they finally got them back. And so it's, it, there's a lot of obstacles. Um, but there's a lot of people that say we don't want, it's an old cliche, you know, you know, give them, don't give them a handout, give them a hand up, right? Well, there's most, a lot of people I talk to in Detroit, that's what they want is they want a job. They want a chance at a the job. They want a hand up. They want to be able to go forward and they want to be able to, to rise out of any poverty, and a lot of them have done that. So there's been a lot of push by the mayor and others to get small businesses operating, to try to um, put seed money out there, to try to get people to do that kind of uh, small restaurants and, and um, you know, re, uh, not resale shops, but the retail and, and um, shops where you can go and and get some really cool clothes and then so there's a lot of things like that and so yeah you know um, a lot of people saw this as an incubator in a way for new cool ideas Um, because there was this whole tableau of things that um, that you would be able to try and that the city would be willing to try to help you with if you were going to get people in the city of detroit they needed to build up the tax base you know as much as humanly possible especially where there was, um, I talked about the white flight the, from the riots or the rebellion. Whoever you talk to, but I mean, there was another flight after the Great Recession, back when they were bailing out the car companies and their production, you know, dropped to whatever it was, you know, less than it ever had been. And, and so there's a lot of people that want to have a chance to go forward and go ahead, and and they're hoping for that chance. So I, I think there is hope. Um, there is a lot of obstacles. Uh, even before any problems from COVID-19, um, car companies had found that the way they could remain profitable was to keep uh, you know, one person doing four jobs. And if they couldn't do all the four jobs at an auto plant, then they would bring in robots to do it. Again, that was one of the things that, uh, and not to keep bouncing all over, but that's one of the main things that President Trump used to barely win Michigan and in a lot of ways propel himself into the White House. He he won Michigan by, I think, the smallest margin of any of the states that he turned, uh, flipped from Obama and flipped to red in 2016. And next to Detroit, uh, which is in Wayne County and takes up almost all of Wayne County, next to it is Macomb County, which um, is a place that I've been in oftentimes. It's very blue collar, and uh, it went from Obama to Trump And he was doing rallies there all the time saying that he was going to make it the manufacturing hub of the world again. And he was going to bring all these jobs back. And and it went right with all the immigration issues about uh, all the jobs are being outsourced to Mexico. We're going to make Ford bring them back. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, And there has been a rise in manufacturing, or again, there had been until COVID struck, uh, but also, a lot of that didn't materialize because when you looked at the facts, it wasn't necessarily that they had sent workers out and outsourced them to other places, but they had replaced a lot of the workers with automation from all the accounts that I could see from reporting and, and from other people I talked to. Because you don't got to pay them, you know, insurance money. You don't have to give them benefits. You don't have to give them days off. I mean, you know, it's a cost effective maneuver. And that whole situation where the, the city, the region was so based on the automotive industry, where people would be told, get in the car business because it's going to be forever. People are going to always want a car, no matter what. And that was before people were worried about, you know, uh, auto emissions and, uh, you know, we should get more green and all that. It was just still people are going to want their cars. And Now they want their SUVs or their, their big pickup trucks. Uh, but that has changed because of the change in manufacturing. And so you have a lot of people that were making a lot of money on production lines that just, they aren't there anymore. And, and those are the people that are not only susceptible to a political message of we're, we'll bring manufacturing back to you and make it back the way it was. And all these little shops along the way that used to make parts will once again flourish. Uh, But it's also something where people are, are not, they're having trouble coming to grips with because they don't think that they can't. You know, there's been a lot of push by people to do different training and to, to school them in more um, tech jobs. There, you know, there's been a, a big push. There's been a lot of people that have job openings, but they just didn't have the skills in the local area to for with workers to to fill those jobs. And so you had people that were out trying to get you know new training on 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 um, how to do IT and things like that. Um, but I would talk to some auto workers who uh, you know say 40s in their 40s and maybe 50s that would flat out tell me, you know, what do I do? I can't, I can't change myself now. I can't change my job. Um, you know, how am I supposed to try to figure out what to do? And so uh, they, um, you know, and, and so they wouldn't even try. And, and so that, that's that been maybe the biggest thing that has hindered the area to an extent now. And I don't know if hindered is right, but it's been the biggest thing that, that has, um, is a problem that needs to be solved. And that is people need jobs. There are jobs available. The people don't have the training for them, either because they never got the schooling because of poverty or because they just don't think they can because they were so used to always being on a production line. So how do you make the two fit? How do you get somebody to get those skills and the desire to do them? And how do you get the jobs available that they could do? And and that's what um, a lot of places have tried to push. Gilbert, the city, other places have tried to push the Make those skills open. And you talk to people in their 20s or 30s, and they say, Yeah, I, say, I don't want to be on this production line forever. I'm going here. I'm going to go there. I'm taking this class, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, boomers plus, it's been a little more difficult.
0: Sure. Yeah. I, 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 wanted to, you kind of touched upon the, the small shops. And that, that was, I guess that's one perception I have. I'm not sure if you're familiar or you've seen, um, the late Anthony Bourdain, his show parts unknown, uh, for, for me, one of my favorite episodes he ever did was, was on Detroit. And I thought it was filmed in, well, it was released in 2013. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm not sure if it was all filmed in 2013 or perhaps late 2012 too. Uh, but it was, it was right in that time out of the great recession, kind of in that period when the, the city, um, filed for bankruptcy there in 2013. So it was kind of at a low point. But what I really loved about the episode was he found, you know, these pockets of of people and um, you know, just this this unrelenting uh blossoming food and culture scene that that was persistent in the city even through those low times. And uh, quite honestly, from what I've heard since then, right? So in the 7 years Past that is, it seems like Detroit is a place where, you know, many chefs and and folks that are getting priced out of some of the bigger cities, your New York, San Francisco, um, where where real estate, you know, forces a lot of people to leave. Um, it seems like a number of them are ending up in Detroit, and from what I've heard, you know, you, you have that, that food and culture and and there's something really happening there. So I, I was just wondering, you, you kind of touched on it, but I was, you know, if you have any thoughts or could elaborate on that a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, it's been wonderful, uh, to be honest, uh, if you like to eat, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is uh, <laughs> what a lot of uh, some people do. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I think there's two things. Everything that you said is, is I, I would absolutely agree with. Um, it was a place where a lot of chefs have come and um, have wanted to set up their own homegrown areas. Some of them either were trained here or grew up here or, or some had ties. And some just thought that this was a, again, a place where you could be an incubator and try new and different things. And that there was a, a, a increasingly receptive audience for it. So there were all sorts of different cool things blossoming. Um, and, places that have themes. I mean, you know, there, there was one that was, a, just a 1950s theme I went to where everything was just as if you just stepped right out of happy days, uh, from the TV show. And, you know, there was one that was where it was made to look like a rocket ship and <laughs> it had all these different things. I mean, so, you know, the, the motifs that they used were, were interesting. The, the various types of foods were, were fantastic. Um, and I, have talked a bit about the, the, the tension between, um, particularly the overwhelmingly white suburbs and the, and the overwhelmingly African-American city. Uh, at the same time, this is a real true sense of a melting pot. I mean, there's a huge Arab-American populace here. There's all sorts of different uh, people and cultures of color. And that's all come together in the food scene, especially. Um, you know, one of my favorite restaurants I like to go to is a place called the Blue Nile. So there's a free plug, Blue Nile. Um, and it's Ethiopian food, which I'd never seen in my life and would have never thought it was all that great. And you don't even use utensils. They bring, you know, hot water to bathe your hands. And then you get this kind of spongy bread that you scoop everything up with and eat. And, and I just stuck myself. Of that. <laughs> uh, it is so great and so tasty. Um, and there's just all sorts of things like that. I mean, Mediterranean food and Asian and just, I mean, every type of different one you could think of. Um, now, you know, you know, um, this is, is a great thing, I believe. And and it was one of the very good things to look at and actually blossomed far beyond what Bourdain was saying during the time of the bankruptcy, which was, you know, I talked about the Great Recession in 08 and 09. But uh, but yeah, that was probably the, the nadir of the city where they had to chop everything off and deal with creditors and, and, and get the thing back on right footing it was the biggest municipal bankruptcy at that time. I think Puerto Rico beat it. Uh, in recent years, but I mean, it was the biggest one for an American city. Um, But it did look like everything was was rising up from that. And this was one of the things was this this wonderful food culture. The problem is I now say that in something of a past tense because of the stupid virus. That's put a crimp, I think, in in the food scene, sadly, very sadly. Um, And, you know, there's several that have just said we don't think we're going to be able to reopen uh, because it's too uncertain and we just don't have the money for it. And so you don't know where that food scene is going to be at right now at the moment. Um, So it's a, it's a cloudy picture. It was really going really well up until, you know, beginning of March. And, um, and since then uh, you you just, you aren't quite sure. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me, let me switch gears a little bit and and get into some of your reporting. I, I want to ask you maybe about some of the more, uh, interesting stories you've covered, and uh, during your time in Detroit. And for me, I, you know, one of the things I think about when I think of like somewhat strange news stories is I'm I'm always led to the the underwear bomber um, who <laughs> was on the on the flight into Detroit's airport um, when he tried to set off explosives essentially in his underwear. And I know from doing some looking around, I know you reported on that. So I, I'm curious, you know, what, what your reactions were, if you remember um, when you first heard about that story. But then, I, but then I know also in communicating with you prior to, prior to this interview, that's, that's not the most uh, bizarre, or interesting stories you've covered. So I was wondering if you could maybe touch upon uh, w- one or two that are near the top of your list.
2: Uh, yeah, no, there's been a fair amount of bizarre. I mean, that, that was, I mean, you know, the guy was trying to blow up the plane on a Christmas Eve and just basically succeeded him in scorching his crotch. Uh, and, uh, um, that was, uh, you know, in the wonderful days, not that long after 9-11, where again, there was a real tension here because there is such a huge Arab and Arab American population. And people would look at them suspiciously some and say, you know, are you terrorists out to get us? And, you know, I talked to guys who were Arab who were, or uh, Muslim who were some of the nicest people I'd ever personally ran into who would say, you know, I'm not a terrorist. I wish they wouldn't treat me like one. And, and so um, there was this societal thing along with the, the, the actual outlines of such a story as that about the, the guy who was actually trying to commit a terrorist act. Um, And and so that that has been one that certainly uh, created a lot of buzz. But there's been a lot. Uh, The mayor here for a long time, Kwame Kilpatrick, who a lot of people thought was going to be the next uh, big rising Democratic star, uh, just really got involved in a lot of corruption and graft and was using a lot of the city contracts to make money for himself out of that. And um, that, along with some salacious texts, uh, drove him out of office. I talked to him every other day. It was always a strange thing for me because that was, as time was getting past 9-11, uh, where all the stuff with him was developing, and there were accusations that he was trying to keep people quiet. You know, And again, I mean, there's a lot of people that to this day will say that that's not correct. Uh, but there were a lot of people and a lot of people in uh, federal offices who believe that that was, in fact, the case. And it was always strange to be talking about the Iraq war and what's going on at the same time, you know, from a distance. But I would still be reporting on it for NPR or for the BBC World Service in particular, because a lot of uh, people in Congress from Michigan at that time, Carl Levin and others, were in some pretty high positions where they were actually making decisions about the war. Um, and, and at the same time, I would go and talk to Mayor Kilpatrick every other day because I was covering him as well. And, you know, you used to think, well, I'm talking about the stuff going on with terrorism miles and hundreds and thousands of miles away. And yet this guy right in front of me could actually be doing some mob like things right here amongst us. It was really strange. And he was such a personable guy, too. He was very, you know, he, you know, even I, when he was getting ready to be sent off, uh, actually, when he was convicted of corruption charges, I had to be behind him a few times um, in the courtroom. And they would stand up as they all rise, you know, and he would go get ready to go back off and whatever. And he wasn't incarcerated at that point. He was still a nice in his nice business suit. And he would turn around and see me. And first thing he does is stick his hand out and he's back into the politician. Hey, how you doing? You know, it's nice to see you gotta come down to Texas. You'd like it there, yeah. which is where he was staying at the time. <laughs> so, I mean, that was strange. Uh, the And then, then there's one one sad story that's always stuck out to me that I, I hate to I don't hate to bring up. It's just, I was reluctant when I even did it to begin with, but um, there were some people I would talk to on the street and there was one homeless guy in particular that I kind of befriended and uh, we talked back and forth and my, my wife passed away and he would console me. He had a little track phone and he'd give me a call and stuff. And, um, and so we had kind of been acquaintance friends for a couple of years. And then I found that he had passed away in a cheap hotel. He would get enough money that he panhandled to be able to, to actually stay in the hotel for a little bit so when that happened I tried to I felt I owed him something so I tried to find if he had any family or anything else and I called up the county and I said well they said yeah we have him here and I said well I've got to find something about a family right or you guys are going to go ahead and bury him quick and give him like a county burial and they said oh no they said he's going to be here for a while I go why is that and they said because we are so broke that we can only we've got about 150 bodies in here and we can only bury about a dozen a year Um, and even then we got to bury them in what we call i forget the name of it it was like a pauper's grave but it was like they put them in a wooden box and put four at a time in one burial spot because that was the most cost-effective way and so he wasn't none of these people were getting buried so i i checked on that and started researching and i found out that other cities had the same thing that they just they couldn't afford to anybody that was indigent and wasn't claimed by anybody they had no way to bury them. so they would just languish in morgues for literally a year and a half or more um so i i started trying to to research and i found out that there were a couple of places that were trying to go on their own to bury these people and um, so i went and interviewed them and the guy's name was TC and because he, he, he'd had some hard times, but he was, he was all there. He wasn't um, crazed. And so I'd actually interviewed him about being on the street sometimes. And so I did a story with that. I had him in it talking about here's what life was like. And then I said that, um, you know, he's not here now because he was found passed away and he's still not going to be laid to rest because they're not laying any of these people to rest. And I, um and I went through the whole story with that and then had him talk at the end of it about, things. And, uh, and I always remember the last line I wrote about that. I said, um, I said, T.C. T.C. Latham, a voice from the beyond now, if not yet a voice from the grave. Huh. And, you know, and, and, and it, that meant a lot to me to do that story. And it actually, I was shocked, got a huge amount of response. Um, I did it for NPR. So it went nationally. And, um, I had people from Boston calling me that said they were, um, there was one woman who was a, a nun who said she taught a class with people who had MS, multiple sclerosis, and they had stopped their classes because they had heard this story, and they wanted to try to figure out how to raise money. They were going like do a, a bake sale or something to raise money to try to bury people in Detroit, and just and it just had this huge thing that that um, rose around it and. And eventually, they found that some of these people who were not buried were Jewish and were veterans. So there was a, a Jewish fund here that would help pay for uh, care of veterans, and I think they paid for the vast majority of them to get buried. So I, I was always That's, iffy on that one because I, I didn't, you know, I, I was I was friends with the guy. I really was. Sure. So I felt weird. To, I felt weird to use him as grist for a story, um, and at the same time, something good came out of it. You know. Yeah. I knew if he was looking down, which I was hoping he was, he would have loved it because he was on the radio then. Yeah. <laughs> he would have liked that. So. Yeah. That one always meant a lot to me.
0: That's That's very interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that one. Um, uh, well, Quinn, thank you. I guess my last question uh, is people in Detroit can find you on WDET 101.9 FM, Detroit's NPR station. Is, uh, do you do podcasts? Is there a way, um, you know, is there is there anything else you'd like to promote where where folks can find you?
2: Yeah, no, um, I've had a lot of people pushing me to do podcast. I have not yet, but um, you know, um, I'm open to offers. Um, uh, yeah, you can find. Yeah. Go ahead, no, was that an offer? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. <laughs> I well,
0: hey, if you if you want to, yeah, we maybe a recurring uh, golf analyst. Maybe we can work that. Right. Uh, you know, hey, I'm
2: I'm all for that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, um, um, you can find the, the stuff that I do do regularly. It's on WDET, as in W and then First Three Letters of Detroit, on their website. I do a fair amount for uh, NPR, for National Public Radio, so you can put me in um, slash NPR, and a lot of the stories I've done for them and do do for them will come up. And um, you can even find me and me and then slash BBC. Um, unfortunately, the BBC especially the BBC World Service promote does so many products and puts out so much material that stuff that they archive only lasts for kind of a certain amount of time. And then they kind of got to clean it out. to get the next vast wave of stuff they've got. So, so that's, that's, but yeah, they can find that all there. And, um, and I'm very happy to, uh, to talk to anybody about any of the above if they are interested, because um, I think that's, why I did this. I started out being a DJ and it wasn't because I wanted to be some big celebrity or whatever, which I wouldn't say I was. Um, but what I did like was the idea of, Hey, this is a cool new record I found and let me tell you about it. And it was like, I was talking to a person. And I think that's what has helped me through a lot of this time was to feel like you're actually just talking to somebody else, just like we're doing now. Yeah. And um, you know, and that was the cool thing I thought about, about doing the audio form of media was that you know it was like here's something cool i know and i'd be happy to hear something cool you know
0: well i gotta say i can't thank you enough for your time and insights and knowledge on detroit and you know what makes it such a, a fascinating interesting american city so um yeah thank you so much